There comes a time in each man's life when he can't even believe his own eyes. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday. Beginning of your weekend, beginning of ours. Glad to have you with us. I'm Gary Nance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour, and that only through the good graces and technical expertise of bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you today? Doing pretty good, and it is Super Bowl weekend. Who do you got? Oh, oh, that's pretty interesting because <laughs> I don't care. If oh, you can believe neither that. do I. <laughs> neither do uh, I. Only, <laughs> only Suzanne Mitchell could get away with saying that is interesting because I don't care. <laughs> I, I am, think we have the the old guy, the young gun, and I'm just looking for a good game that I can enjoy. I hope it's not a blowout. I hope it's close and. I intend to just enjoy it without uh, particularly rooting for one or the other. Now, we have a very scholarly man with us, Stefan Schwartz, who's joining us. So he will appreciate it when I use a term that uh, comes from Greek drama back in the day. And the word is agon. Agon is a word that implied youth will be served. So the old way gives way to the new way. The old must serve the young. And therefore, I'm going to stick with Chiefs Kingdom if I had 20 bucks to bet on it, I would bet on the Chiefs. And here is Tom Brady, 10th Super Bowl. He's got, what, six Super Bowl rings? Yeah, it's They're crazy. So uh, it's just incredible. He's the GOAT, greatest of all time. Sure. Could yeah. he pull it off one more time? Yes. Yes, he could. Absolutely. That's why they play these things. Mm-hmm. But if you ask me who's going to win, I'm going to stick with the probabilistic view that the Chiefs will prevail and go back to back, which is fairly unusual in this era. It's rare, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have okay, that. Okay, Benny, what other trouble you want to cause? No, us no, no, I'm get done. To our interview? I got that look. I got that look like shut your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so hope everybody enjoys the big game. Yeah, right. God forbid you should call it what it is. You'll get sued. <laughs> but today we're going to discuss the people, the places, and especially the issues of our time. They are burning issues, and they've been burning for a while, but hopefully this is more of a hopeful flame than a toxic waste dump, which, uh, in my opinion, we've had to suffer through for the last four years. Suzanne, why don't you give our guest his mad props? Stephan A. Schwartz is a distinguished consulting faculty member at Saybrook University, a research associate of the Laboratories for Fundamental Research, editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net, and columnist for the peer-reviewed research journal Explore. The author of several books and more than 100 technical papers, he's also written articles for Smithsonian, Omni, American History, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and The Huffington Post. He's a local. He lives in Langley, Washington, and we are very gratified to invite him to Manson Mitchell for the 10th time today. Welcome, Stefan Schwartz. Welcome to you. Yeah. Good to see you on Zoom, too. That's a first. Yeah. Well, you know, new technologies. We're all adapting. 
I yes, think that's we... going to play into our conversation. Well, today. okay. If you're going to go that way, Steph, and talk about new technologies, here we go. I've done a copy and paste job in order to have some, some prompts, some teasers here, Steph. And let me go ahead with one of your latest. I would, I'd like to read this verbatim from Stefan Schwartz in his Schwartz report. He writes, I think this might have been yesterday. Another SR prediction is coming true. Big oil is going the way of sailmakers and carriage harness makers, not disappearing, but enormously diminished. Although I think, Stefan writes, big oil is going to use its wealth to try to segue into dominating solar and wind generation. A further confirmation of this transition, President Biden has committed to creating 500,000 EV charging stations and newly confirmed Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has said he is going to do everything he can to see that Biden's goal is met or surpassed. The times they are a changing as Bob Dylan's song had it. And a lot of people who look at fossil fuel stuff and say, yeah, we've had it. It's time for us to turn that page of history and embrace the technology much more affordable, more cost efficient that awaits us. Well, not only that, I mean, the real the, the sort of test of the hypothesis is that most European countries and uh, most of the Nordic countries and now the United States are all saying they're only going to have electric vehicles on the road by about 2040. It depends on how you count it out. But you know, given that uh, the average life of a car in the United States is about 12, 13 years, that isn't really, that's sort of like two cars into the future, as it were, maybe a little less than two cars into the future. Um, as they build, I, I mean, in a way, I see Biden's commitment to build these EV generating charging points very much like uh, Dwight Eisenhower's commitment to build the interstate commerce, uh, interstate uh, highway system. So I, I think you can see with these commitments that you see in Europe and, and uh, particularly in the Nordic countries, but you know, Holland, that they're going to make the conversion. GM has just announced that uh, they're going to make the conversion. We have been behind because for the last four years, there has been nothing but a protection of the carbon power and the carbon industries. But that's all changing now with, with uh, Biden's commitment to climate change. And I think you're going to see it. It's actually going to go faster as um, more charging stations, because that's one of the main hangups that, that keep people from doing it is, well, what happens if my batteries run down and I'm out in the middle of nowhere? So I think we're going to see a major change. I certainly, the next car that uh, my wife and I buy, I'm sure will be an, an EV. You know, you talk about uh, the oil over the uh, past few years, but it actually goes back quite a long time. We, we've talked to um, a, a gentleman who has um, gone into the deep end of the pool regarding big oil with us. And um, I, I was very happy to see that Keystone pipeline stopped because my understanding from what I've heard and read is that all the oil that they were gonna be pumping 
uh, through the United States and all these pipelines was going to go down to the Texas refineries and then be shipped overseas anyway. None of it was going to be used in the United States because there was no profit in it. And so, uh, you know, it's like we're our, our country, our environment suffers so that big oil can just make more and more money. And so when they said we're stopping the Keystone Pipeline, I, I said, hooray, hooray. We don't need to be putting more money into the pockets of the big oil guys. Well, I agree with that. But that, that, that really uh, is speaking to the fundamental problem of the United States. And that is we only have one social priority, and that's profit. Right. We don't have a health care system. We have an illness profit system. We had Betsy DeVos continue, we wouldn't have a public education system. We'd have a private charter school system. So, I mean, the central problem that all countries are going to face, and particularly the United States, because it is really a, a, a sort of our main crisis, is that you have to create societies that foster well-being. That's the only way we're going to get through climate change. You can already see it happening in countries like New Zealand, where they're, they're, I mean, they're explicitly making a commitment that all social policies will foster well-being at every level, from the individual to the family, the community, the province, the state, the nation, the earth itself, and all the beings that are on it. I mean, that's the only way that we can go forward, but it's going to be very painful for a number of countries because their orientation is simply, is it profitable? Yeah, so I, at the same time, I look at uh, Canada, for example, and I think that it is framed inappropriately, I don't know about deliberately, but inappropriately by people who say, well, sure, let's all move up to Canada where you get free health care. And I'm quick to remind them, there is no free lunch. There's no free Healthcare, it's a question of national priorities. They have a tax base, yes, are their taxes relatively higher? Certainly in some sectors, yes, they are. However, I met a lady, this is when Suzanne and I went to Walt Disney World several years ago, right, Stefan? And we're sitting there and uh, we were seated next to some Canadians at this Hofbrau. Long story short, uh, she told me that she was from Canada and she was coming down there after having looked after her mother who came back from the hospital in um, in Ontario, and um, she was well treated. She was very happy with the care that she received. And I said, "Well, how does that work with that system? I mean, what do you do? You got to show some insurance papers or something. How do you get connected?" And she pulled out her health card, her national health card. And she said, "You need this. You show them this." And I said, "Okay, but what about aftercare? You know, you've got prescriptions and follow up visits." And she just pulled out her card again and waved and said, "This. This is what handles it." They have streamlined their system and provided a creditable quality of care, and they've done it without this illness for profit monster under everybody's bed. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, from my perspective, one of the main things that we have learned from the COVID nineteen pandemic is that we have, you know, we got four percent, four point two three percent of the world's population and twenty five percent of the death. Now, why is that? And the answer is because from the get-go of this crisis, we did not have a national policy. We made decisions because it was all done on the basis of profit. So for instance, in rural communities, 
which aren't very profitable for the, the hospitals are closing. The staff is going down. Um, we don't have the distribution networks. We didn't have the masks set up for distribution. All of the whole, I mean, the whole nine yards, the illustration that the COVID-19 pandemic gives us is that the system of healthcare that we have in this country simply is not appropriate to the circumstances of the times. And that's, by the way, not a political statement. That's just based on facts. I mean, yes, if that's you look actuarial. at any of the social outcome data, you can see that we do appallingly because every decision is based essentially on, is it going to be profitable? I used to ask people, why can't, and I had two hospitalizations in my 50s. I hope that's it for a while. And I remember uh, making a joke about, you want how much for an aspirin? I could bring in a bottle of aspirin, name the brand or off-brand, and they're probably going to relieve my headache just as well. Well, you can't do that. <laughs> yes, I'll bet. <laughs> so I, I look at the costs of these and I think, when you have a profit-based system, whatever it is, the, the time-honored argument, whether it's exaggerated or not, is that with competition, you get excellence of care. That may be true in some ways, but I've also seen instances in which it was anything but true. You know, the, 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 the function of healthcare is supposed to be to foster well-being. And again, you know, I'm a fact guy. I'm an, as you know, I'm an experimentalist. And so everything that I know about most things um, that I care about uh, is based on facts. And the facts are that our system did not deliver proper health care and that thousands of people died as a result of the formal governmental policies and the infrastructure that was in place. I, I mean, it's, I just don't understand how anybody can look at this and, and not understand that. We need to have universal birthright single payer healthcare. It's in everybody's interest for there to be healthcare that whose primary purpose is to see that people are healthy. Uh, again, uh, particularly in the rural areas in the middle of the country, you know, I've seen studies that show that a woman in a state like Montana or Wyoming, if her water breaks at two o'clock in the morning and she's got to drive 100 miles to a hospital in order to deliver her baby, she may deliver it in the truck that's driving her there. I mean, I, I just, it's astonishing when you think about it, because yes, just like your story, Gary, I mean, you talk to people from other countries. I mean, for instance, we had 500,000 bankruptcies last year as a result of, of medical costs. And you, you know, you go to France, for instance, and you, you talk to somebody that it's just, that, that it doesn't exist. Whereas we pay more for healthcare than any other any other developed nation on earth. I mean, it's just, we pay not just a little bit more, we pay orders of magnitude more than other countries pay to get inferior healthcare based on the social outcome evidence. Don't you think a lot of that, uh, Stefan, has to do with the fact that universal healthcare is a socialist idea 
I mean, I, I think that's where people who really don't know what they're talking about scream socialism, socialism. And, you know, as we all know, most of the well-developed countries of the world do have universal health care. But for some reason in the United States, that becomes a socialist idea. How do you overcome that kind of thinking? Well, I mean, you got to start, Suzanne, with the fact that we are the most socialist country in the world, only our, ours is a socialism for the rich. We right. have a wealth inequality differential that is horrifying. I mean, if, if you realize that 10 people have made over a trillion dollars in, in increased uh, uh, wealth during the course just of this pandemic, and 40% of the country couldn't write a $400 check in a crisis, and we have food care, food lines at food stations that are miles long and people wait for four or five hours in order to get some food to put on their table. One in eight American children has health, has uh, food issues, food insecurity issues. So we are a socialist country. It's just that the socialism is for the very rich. And speaking of the Trump tax cuts, there, give us your, we're looking back in the rear view mirror now, but even as we go forward, I, there's going to be movement on that score, I'm quite sure, during the Biden administration. But when you look at it, as best you can sift through it, looking through the economic filter, did the Trump tax cuts do more good than harm to the body politic of America? Well, they clearly did more harm because they exacerbated the, the wealth uh, differential. I mean, here's one of my favorite stories in the last couple of weeks. Four guys are going to pay $55 million each to go up to the space station. Now, if you're a single mother with a couple of kids and you don't know whether you're going to be able to stay in your apartment or going to get evicted or you're not sure that you're going to be able to buy the medications for one of your children or whether or even if you're a standard middle class family and and you're, you know you're thinking do we have enough money to buy a bicycle for for little Johnny on his ninth birthday and at the same time a handful of men have got 55 million dollars that they can just spend I mean, just basically for a getaway trip of, you know, a unique kind of getaway trip. I mean, that's preposterous. Yes, it is. And there are many uh, other such examples. I go back to the economy in the final, the waning days of the George W. Bush administration. Here you go, Barack Obama. Let's just, we'll, we'll leave this right here for you. And when we look at that, I remember hearing on the news before they started calling it fake news. I remember clearly that when it came down to that great recession, the companies, the firms that were doing well, they had no problems at all, were the diamond companies, were the yacht makers, Rolls-Royce was having a field day, all the luxury items that could be afforded by people whose personal fortunes were not seriously damaged by the great recession flourished while people who had thought erroneously that they could get into a home cheap. A, a man and his wife and their two or three kids were gonna be able to take a subprime and they would live the American dream. Not so. 
That's why people talk about a stacked deck when we talk about the American economy. Well, I mean, you know, I, I just published in one of the medical journals, I did a survey of all the, of the red states and the blue states. And I, and I used social outcome data as my measurement. So I'm looking at things like infant mortality, maternal mortality, obesity, heart disease, uh, literacy, education, incarceration. I mean, just, you know, pick any social outcome you like. And what you see when you actually look at the data and you cut through all the BS on, on polit political commentary, you forget about all the partisan stuff. You just look at the data. And what you come away with is that red states, conservatively governed, Republican-governed states, always, without exception, are inferior in their governance to socially progressive states. And a, a paper was just published yesterday, which I put in, or the day before, which I put into SR. Someone else has done the research at the presidential level, and they show that Democratic presidents always produce more social well-being than Republican presidents. So all of these partisan political theoretical arguments, as soon as someone says to me, oh, that's just socialism, I realize they, they either are too ignorant to actually do the research or they're simply lying because it is very clear that those governmental policies which foster well-being are universally all over the world more productive easier to implement more efficient nicer to live under and much much cheaper i mean that's the other thing is that policies that foster well-being on the basis of the evidence not political partisanship, on the basis of the evidence, always produce better social outcomes. So where's the profit in that? You're talking about us being a profit culture. If there are ways to do things that are better for people and they're even less expensive, then you don't have the greedy profiteers in there trying to make their money on it. I mean, I yes, can, you have I can, to decide when right. you're creating social policy, does this foster well-being? And more than that, and I think importantly, each of us as individuals, every day we make dozens of choices. I mean, if you think about it, you go to the store and you buy a toothpaste and you buy the kind that your mother taught you to buy or your college roommate suggested to you or whatever but every day we make all kinds of little choices like that and actually if you think of them as votes uh, that's a much better way to think of them because all those little choices if you if you commit that I will only make that I will always pick of the options available to me the ones that are the most fostering of well-being and I'll tell 10 people that I'm going to do it and ask them to join me and tell 10 of their friends. 
just the people that are listening to this radio program or this podcast, if they would commit to this, I call this the quotidian choice. If you would commit to this every day, I make lots of choices. I will always commit of the options available to me that I will pick the one that is the most life-affirming, compassionate, and fostering of well-being. And if we would do that, then the entire structure of our society would change. It wouldn't. It doesn't take an army. It doesn't take a great political power. It's just ordinary people. When when a large group of people, and in fact, we even know how many people, 10% of any cohort, whether it's a church group, a school group, or a nation, decide to change their consciousness about something, when 10% do it, the entire cohort has to accommodate for that change. And you can see this in, for instance, the transition from gay to LGBT, Nobody passed a law that we are LGBTQ now. Nobody passed a law that said we have to change that word. But if you go to a Google word search and you will discover that about three and a half, it's getting on four years ago, people stopped saying gay and they started saying LGBT and then LGBTQ. And that's not just a change in term, that's a change in conception of sexuality and gender. And it's changing the entire culture. And it's happening not because somebody's passing a law about it, but because individuals day by day are making different choices. So the key to all of this change is that it relies on the collective intention of ordinary people. We have the power to change whatever. You can also see it in the Me Too movement. You can see it when when you and I were uh, children and we went to somebody's house, there used to be an ashtray and a lighter and a pack of cigarettes on the coffee table. You never see that anymore. It isn't that somebody passed a policy. It's that individuals made a decision. They just weren't going to do that anymore. And so the question is, if not us, then who? And if not now, then when? Well said. And I can tell you, Stefan, that the reason I don't see a cigarette-filled ashtray on a coffee table is because if I know I'm around a bunch of smokers, family or not, I'm not going in there. <laughs> and that, too, is a matter. This just reinforces what you said. This is a matter of personal choice. I don't want that around me. Yes, we exactly. We are that is the point. When individual, there is no power on earth more powerful than the collective intention of ordinary people when a lot of them get together. I mean, to give you a very specific example, you look, for instance, at Mahatma Gandhi. Now, think about it. This one guy in his little dhoti, is, the thing looks like a sheet wrapped around him, this one guy with no political power, ostensibly no official position, didn't command any army, wasn't rich, and yet he was able to get independence for India without a war. Now think about that for a minute. How many countries do you know that got independence from their colonial status to independent status and there was no war? 
And right before he was assassinated, they went up to a reporter went up and asked Gandhi, he said, well, my editor sent me up here to ask just one question. Gandhi said, well, what's the question? And he said, my editor wants to know how you forced the British to give up their most precious colonial possession without a war. How did you do that? And Gandhi's answer tells the story. He says, it wasn't what we did that mattered, although that did matter. It wasn't what we said that mattered, although that mattered. It was the nature of our character, the beingness of our beingness that made and led the British to choose. Notice the difference, force choose, to choose to leave India and give it independence. I mean, if you look at, at how actual change happens, again, I'm a data guy. If you look at it, what you discover is that violent change only succeeds 25% of the time and it doesn't last very long. I mean, you think about it, national socialism in Germany lasted you know, maybe 10, 15 years max. Communism in, in Russia lasted, uh, well, depending on how you calculate it, 73, 74 years within the lifetime of a single person. So historically, I mean, a very tiny amount of time, it doesn't last very long and it isn't successful uh, very often. Whereas nonviolent change succeeds 75% of the time and is enduring. That's the thing, the durability of peaceful change. Absolutely. Our guest is Stefan Schwartz. We're going to take a quick break. I wanted to mention his book, The Eight Laws of Change, How to Be an Agent of Personal and Social Transformation. It is on us. It's also our opportunity. We're delighted to have the opportunity to talk to Stefan Schwartz today. After a short break, we will continue our conversation on Manson Mitchell, right here at the epicenter of Alternative Talk in Seattle, AM 1150. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. We are the physicians, the nurses, the hospital and health system leaders. All we ask of you is to take three simple steps proven to stop the spread of COVID. Wear a cloth face mask. Maintain social distance. 
and wash your hands. Scientific evidence must shape our decisions, dictate our actions, and protect our health. We are not powerless. Together, we will defeat COVID. This has been a message from the American Hospital Association, the American Medical Association, and the American Nurses Association. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomes Stefan Schwartz for his perspective on the political and cultural landscape of life in America 2021. On Saturday, Kelly Sullivan Walden, the Green Doctor, returns with the path to becoming an awakened dreamer in a world that wants you to stay asleep. Bringing you fascinating talk one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Find out the latest about your favorite shows on Alternative Talk 1150. Check out 1150kknw.com. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our very special guest this hour, Stefan Schwartz. He is the author of several books. The one I'm holding in my hand is The Eight Laws of Change, How to Be an Agent of Personal and Social Transformation. He does the schwartzreport.net, which Gary reads religiously. And I wanted to give you the opportunity, Stefan, to let people know where they can find you, how they connect with you, and anything else you would like to tell our listeners. Well, you know, I I publish the Daily Schwartz Report, which is a web publication on trends that are shaping the future. You go to it, it's www.schwartzreport.net. I've been, there's no fee, I give it away. I don't have ads on it. <clears throat> I've been doing it since 1991. Or you go to my personal website, stephanaschwartz.com, and you can get all my books and other things. Or you can go to academia.edu or researchgate.com and you can get, uh, I, don't give, I have several hundred papers that are up. Or you go to YouTube and search on my name and you can get hundreds of interviews that I've done. So I try to make this information freely available. Uh, I just see it as sort of my contribution to the good. And it's all science-based. It's all fact-based. I don't do political partisanship. I don't do, um, I'm not arguing for somebody's particular benefit. I just care about fostering well-being. Excellent. Thank you. Stefan, let me tell you my side of this, and I would absolutely love to get your personal recollections. They will be fresh because this is very recent. I was watching the news on the evening and, and pretty much throughout the day. That's what we do here. But on the evening of January 5, 2021, I was watching MSNBC, our go-to station. And we watch a little CNN as well, as well as the local stuff. And uh, when it was getting late, we turned off the TV. I turned to Suzanne seated there on the couch here in our living room. And I said, tomorrow is going to be an ugly day in this country. And I said it uh, with some data. You like data? Yes, I, you know, I'm aware that President Trump had invited people to the Capitol to uh, lend their voices to his. Going to be wild. I'm aware of all that. But when I said those words to Suzanne, tomorrow is going to be an ugly day in this country. There was this feeling in my gut that whatever we think might happen, it's going to be worse. And even at that, the next day, January 6th, forever to be remembered, January 6th, 2021, actually turned out to be worse than the worst I thought it could be. What was your experience? 
Well, I'm pretty much like yours, uh, Gary. I mean, on the January 6th, we, we experienced an insurrection. And, you know, I mean, if you think about that and you everybody's seen all the pictures, they show them over and over again on all the stations. But if you think about it, uh, for instance, that, uh, that I'm very mindful that commentary that occurred, you don't hear it so much at the moment, but in the last few days, you know, that as the mob stormed up the stairs of the Capitol, up the steps of the Capitol, they got Mike Pence, the vice president, moved into safety with about a 60-second lead, and it was because of one policeman who led the mob in to the right instead of to the left. So, you know, if we were sitting here today having this conversation uh, about, you know, it's about a month since uh, that happened, and, um, and say five uh, senators and representatives had been killed, as the mob was trying to do, they'd gotten hold of, they'd killed Nancy Pelosi. Imagine if we were sitting here having a conversation about that exact day, and and instead of what we are being able to say, we said, oh, well, you know, that was when Nancy Pelosi was stomped to death by a crowd, and um, uh, three other congressmen were killed, Mike Pence was captured, and uh, they, they took him away someplace and nobody knows where he is. He's being held hostage. I mean, imagine what would happen. We experienced something that we have not experienced in 240 years. I mean, not since 1787. There's never been an insurrection like that. And I think it tells you, you know, my view has always been that Trump is, was a symptom it was like having a pimple or a boil or an abscess. He wasn't the cause. He was the manifestation of the symptom. What, what's really, if, if you think about American history, the problem we have in America is that we have not had massive social violence in the United States since 1865. And so there's no living American that can remember what it was like. But trust me, you go to France or Germany or, or Hungary or Great Britain or any, any of the countries that were destroyed in the Second World War and you talk to them about, you know, what's it like to live in a country where there is massive violent social conflict and they give you a very different story. Americans just don't have any idea what it's like when there is massive social violence. And as a result of that, we have about 74 million people who are okay with the idea of that kind of violence because they have no direct experience of it. They haven't a clue what it's like to not be able to go out at night for fear you're going to be shot or the fact that there are no grocery stores within any distance you can get to that are able to be open because all the grocery store people were Jews and they've been killed, all that kind of stuff. We have a, we have a, a, a level of tolerance of the kind of nonsense that is going on with QAnon and, and Proud Boys and all of that, that if the Americans actually understood the implications of what they are proposing they would, be, and they had real experience with it, they would be appalled. 
I just it's astonishing to me. So January the 6th, I think, of course, as and I know you would agree, you and Suzanne, is going to be a historic date. I mean, people are going to be studying that in in school a hundred years from now. How did we get to that? What happened? You know, all of that. I mean, I heard uh, 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 the, uh, the other day on an interview, talk, which most people don't seem to realize, talking about the fact that they were defecating on the floor of the Capitol and you know, they took the flag down and tried to put a Trump flag up or the, 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 the rifling through the desks and stealing things. You've got Congress people now talking about they're fearful of going out. I mean, uh, uh, AOC, for instance, a woman who, who seems remarkably benign, but who re seems to be the focus of such incredible hatred. I mean, feeling that she was not going to get through the day and that she had to hide in a colleague's office and was looking into the closets to see where she could get in the closet. I mean, that's a, a believable. Or congressmen and senators who were lying on the floor of the chamber because they were afraid somebody was going to get shot. I mean, it's just think about that. Yes, it, it's, it is truly incredible. And looked at from another angle, which was poignant to me, Stefan, and history will be written, we know this, but based on the facts, I should say based on the reporting, I wanna be careful about this, based on the reporting that I watched and listened to that day, can you imagine the Vice President of the United States is being subjected to threats of hanging? You have people who voted for him weeks earlier <laughs> shouting, yes. hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. You said he had a 60-second window to escape harm and possible death. And so he was hustled out of there, thank goodness. And yet what I heard, again, this was MSNBC reporting, and we'll see as the facts come out if it's clarified. Supposedly, one of his aides had to call the White House to let Donald Trump and company know that his vice president was safe. We're all right over here because nobody within the White House bothered to call inquiring about pads. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Service. No, I had the same reaction. All those people who were storming, try, chanting hang tents, most of them had voted for him. I, it's just, I, I, really, it's just kind of breathtaking that, that we have gotten to this point. I mean, you know, the we, we tend to pick the public figures that we focus on, but the truth of the matter is that the problem with America is Americans. We have a whole group of people because, again, because we have not had social violence in our country in living memory, we have people espousing it because they have no clue as to what it would actually be like if we were doing that. You know, you... You, uh, I was in Hungary not so long ago, and you talk to somebody in Hungary, a country that's been overrun again and again and again, they have very clear ideas about what it's like to live in a country where, you know, nothing works, where 
you have violence on the street, you can't go out, you, you know, all of the stuff that happens, the buildings are being destroyed. You know, we don't have any memory of that. And so we think it's easy to talk about uh, this, uh, uh, this gun obsession that we have. You know, gun sales have gone up 80% in the last year. 19,000 people were killed last year with guns. Uh, there's no other developed nation in the world that has that kind of, of gun violence rate. It's, we need to sit down as a people like the founders. You know, the founders understood about revolution. They understood about uh, what happens when church and state become one. They understood why immigrants were important to the future. They were all immigrants or the children of immigrants, they tried to give us a structure for the country that was designed so that people would help one another and that there would be a, a, a growing sense that we can produce well-being for everyone. You know, Benjamin Franklin started the first fire company, the first insurance company, started the first hospitals, blah, 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 I and mean, use of sanitation. Because he understood that when uh, people from differing backgrounds joined together to work in common for the, to foster well-being, that the country prospers. I mean, Franklin uniquely amongst all the, the uh, founders saw the country as essentially a fundamentally middle-class a country in which people from different backgrounds, different races, everything joined together. You know, he was the president of the Abolition Society in Pennsylvania when he died. It's the founders were very clear what they were trying to create. Now they had flaws, you know, they were slave owners and some of them, and yes, they had flaws, but they were basically trying to create a country where the creation and fostering of well-being for everyone was the best way to go. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, the, uh, we've gotten off track, but not just in the last four years. I mean, it's been decades since we've been heading in this uh, direction. And um, one of the times that we spoke with you in the last couple of times, you were saying, you know, we're, we're really at a crossroads. And I think it was maybe the first time that we were talking about your book, The Eight Laws of Change, is that, you know, you said we are at a crossroads now. And I'm wondering if, if we're still in the midst of that crossroads going one way or the other, or with this last election, have we rejected the, the, uh, the way that it was going and now heading in a different, different direction? I mean, is it too soon for you to get a sense about that? I mean, well, to, me, to me, it was a wonderful change. Yes. Well, I would agree with you, Suzanne. Uh, I, yes. I think we are, we are making a change. Uh, uh, one of the things that that's going to be very painful and is one of the most difficult things is that we're becoming a, minor, a majority minority country. Right. And that makes a certain group of white people just crazy. Right. 
and we're going to have to get through that. But I was very heartened that when Biden came in right away, he, I mean, just, he's only been in about three weeks, you know, he understands about climate change. He understands that we got to change the financial structure. I mean, uh, and the, the people that are getting put into positions of authority, I mean, Elizabeth Warren has joined the finance committee and she's got very clear ideas of, that we must change the tax structure. Yep. Interestingly enough, by the way, I was just looking at tax data and you know, in the post-World War II period, when the American middle class really gets created, you know, at the end of World War II, as a result of policies like the, the uh, uh, education benefits and the, the uh, household, you could, you know, that, uh, veterans could get help buying a house. The middle class really gets created and the technology that began in the second war really takes off. At that time, during the, the uh, uh, administrations of, of both Truman and Eisenhower, the tax rate was much higher yes. than it is today uh, on wealthy people. They paid much higher tax yeah. rates. Uh, up to 90%, I believe, at one Yeah, point. I mean, it was just, it, I, I was so struck by the figures, uh, the differential between, you know, you've got large corporations in this country that don't pay any taxes at all. That's right. Um, so you can't, w when you think about how the middle class got created, the unionization, for instance, the, the correlation between financial security of Americans, ordinary Americans, as a result of the development of unionization is just gobsmacking. And the fact that only about 11% of the workforce in the United States today is actually unionized, so they don't have the ability to have a, a collective presence we need to go back. It gets the same thing we started with. We need to create social policies that foster well-being. And I am was very pleased that within his first couple of weeks, Biden has really committed to that. And most importantly, he gets climate change because yeah. climate change is a civilization. It's an existential threat to human civilization. I just People just don't have any idea what's coming. You know... Uh, a lot of what you've talked about today is experience. When you have experienced certain things, then you make one kind of a choice. If you haven't had the experience, it seems to me like the other thing that's lacking is the education. Like people don't know things. I'm yes. always surprised by what it is that people don't know. And I think, well, if they knew more, would they be thinking differently than what they do? Yes. Well, we don't teach civics. You right. know, I'm sure when you were a girl and you were in, I've forgotten, I think I got it in the seventh or eighth grade. I was going to say seventh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you used to have a civics course, American history and how the country was put together and right. what, how things worked and all that. You know, most people don't, could, most Americans cannot tell you how many Supreme Court justices there are, and they can't name any of them, or they can name one or two, maybe. Right. We, they just, we don't educate people 
anymore in how the government works and why it should, it was originally designed to create well-being because that's what the founders, they had come through a war, they were all immigrants or the children of immigrants. They were, I mean, they, they all their flaws, they nonetheless saw that uh, only collective action on behalf of fostering well-being was going to produce the kind of country they wanted. And so they did everything they could to make that happen. And, and that is one of the eight laws of change, how to be an agent of personal and social transformation. I know we've talked about your book before. There are, I think your book is hugely relevant right now because we do have the opportunity as individuals to make significant change. And you talk about in your book, you know, working toward that common goal and, and setting that intention with people. And so I do want to recommend that. And uh, um, I want to encourage jump in informed political dialogue and the exercise of one's critical thinking faculties. And maybe we'll get past the time, Stefan Schwartz, when somebody can say someone elected to Congress can actually opine that the wildfires in California were caused by Israeli lasers. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I saw that too. <laughs> Uh, only the the, the way I, that I read it originally, or I think the way I was quoted, I I mean I did, is that it was done by Jewish Jews running lasers to create the California wildfires. You know, I thought <laughs> I don't give them enough credit for business acumen. I guess, <laughs> and I thought, dear God, are we still in the protocols of Zion? I mean, yeah. Jewish lasers, yeah. I mean, I get know. real. There's some oh, sort of other space program. I, I mean, I, you're right. I completely agree with you, Gary. That the, the, these statements that you hear people making—that it's there's this secret pedophile ring being run out of a pizza, pizza parlor, parlor that course. Hillary Why Clinton not? is drinking the blood of babies. There you go. I mean, really? <laughs> you actually believe that? And a lot of them do. We need yes, another. Yes, that's the scary part. We need, and you get up early, and God bless you for that. Sometime, let's have a reality check sometime soon. You're always good for mental health. Absolutely true. Stefan Schwartz, thanks so much for joining us today. The hour flew by. We'd love to talk to you again, sir. Enjoy your weekend. All right, you too. Good all to right. talk with you all again. Yes. Stay Likewise. safe, be well. You too. You Thank too. you. Coming up next. Coming up next, the Christine Upchurch Show, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience, and then American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the Super Bowl, everyone. And may the Schwartz be with you.